Welcome to the Chris Wallace Chronicles. All right, you don't know who that is. Okay. He lives in Australia now, but he lived in Hollywood before Australia and New York before Hollywood. You know, the actor, the songwriter. He was at ringside for the first Ali Frazier fight, Liza Minnelli's date one night. He used to smoke weed with Morgan Freeman. Likes to tell stories, like this one. Somehow I found out that there was an open call at the Sheraton Dinner Theater in downtown St. Louis. It was for the Cole Porter musical Silk Stockings. Everybody else, except for the star, was from New York. They'd been with the show in other cities and would rock up in a few days to start rehearsals. Obviously, someone left the cast and the role of Commissar Markovich was open. I got it. Now, I was never really a theater rat. I never painted scenery. I didn't know a flat from a prop. And if I wasn't in a show, I had nothing to do with theater. The rest of the cast soon rolled into town. They were all Broadway gypsies. They talked like theater people. They acted like theater people. And they definitely looked like theater people flashy. I felt like the bumpkin from Let a Rip. There were a couple of gay guys in the cast that referred to me as a poor, naive boy. They weren't wrong. On the first day of rehearsal, the star arrived from Hollywood, Jan Sterling. You can Google her. She never made it really big, but she was a known quantity. To me, she was unapproachable. I didn't know you could talk to her like a regular person. Before the first rehearsal began, everyone was sitting around getting acquainted. Joe Mankiewicz's name came up. Somebody said, oh, he's a terrific director. Jan Sterling said, yeah, but he's lousy fucking. Those were the first words I heard her say. I cannot begin to tell you how much hearing a movie star say fuck threw me. God, I was green. When rehearsal started, though, I was pretty much able to hold my own. I mean. All I had to do was say my lines and sound like I meant it. If I'd had to sing or dance, I'd have been dead. And like I said, I wasn't a theater rat, so I didn't know the first thing about makeup either. I didn't know you were supposed to do your own. I didn't know squat. So when I decided that Commissar Markovich should have a goatee, I didn't know how to do that either. I didn't know that you used spirit gum to glue it on. Somehow I got the notion that this other stuff would do. I don't even remember what the other stuff was. All I remember is that during one performance, my sweat loosened this adhesive, and Commissar Markovich couldn't take his hand away from his chin. If he did, his goatee would fall off. Silk Stockings is going to be the second of three dinner theater shows at the Sheraton. The first is already running, Guys and Dolls. Dan Daly was another Hollywood star. He was a hoofer in all the musicals I saw him in. He played Sky Masterson in Guys and Dolls. We could watch a performance of the show from the back of the room. After the show was over, Dan Daly would come out, say thanks, and do a little soft shoe for the folks. I was standing there enjoying it with everyone else when I felt something poking around my ass. What the fuck? The guy standing behind me was the choreographer for Silk Stockings. I launched my elbow into his chest. He looked at me with this really injured look on his face and said, Sorry, as if I'd crossed a line. Jan Sterling played Ninochka. She couldn't sing. Being in a Cole Porter musical, you'd think singing might be helpful, but if you weren't sitting at a ringside table, you could hardly hear her. 
Larry Brooks played the male lead. He could sing. He'd been in Song of Norway on Broadway, and his rich baritone filled the room. He had to bring it back to nearly a whisper on duets with Jan. While Silk Stockings was running, they were getting ready for the next show, another Cole Porter musical, Can Can. Somebody from that road company must have gotten a better gig, too, because there was a role open. The director of Can Can saw that I was in Silk Stockings and cast me as Judge Paul Barriere. Larry Brooks was staying on for Can Can, too. And the female star was Monique Van Voren, a busty blonde from Belgium, sort of a poor man's Jane Mansfield. She couldn't sing either, but she looked great in her can-can outfit. Larry Brooks really carried that show musically, too. I opted against any facial hair on this one, but I wanted to give Judge Barrier some gravity, so I decided he should have gray hair. All this involved was buying a can of spray. I could manage that. But during one of the performances, something went wrong. Not with my hair, but on stage. I was waiting for my cue to enter... I couldn't see what was going on, but the cue never came. I froze. As we used to say back in Ohio, I didn't know whether to shit or wind my watch. Somehow, someone saved the day and the show went on. But one of the actors ripped into me afterward like the novice I was, telling me that I had mightily fucked up. You're an actor. You're supposed to keep the show going. You just stood there. Don't you know anything? Haven't you ever heard the show must go on? I was humiliated and deserved to be. Our matinees were always a lot of fun. Not because of the blue-haired ladies who attended, but because the girls from Evelyn West's show did. Evelyn West was a stripper who worked at a club in the next block past the TikTok club on DeBoliver. It was billed as Evelyn West and her $50,000 treasure chest. She and her girls booked a big table every Wednesday afternoon. They hooted and howled at silk stockings and can-can like they were seeing them for the first time. Every Wednesday. With regular money coming in, I decided to demo some of my songs. Even though I was doing okay in St. Louis, I always had my eye on New York. It was the only place where I could honestly say I'd rather be. Before, it was to get into advertising. Now, it was to get into show business, but it was always New York. Jack Lee was the musical director for both Silk Stockings and Can Can. I told him I'd written and recorded a demo for a Christmas Calypso song. I asked him if he knew anybody close to Harry Belafonte. It was Jack who gave me Bob DeCormier's number in New York. He'd produced an album or two with Harry. In turn, it was Bob DeCormier who put me on to Bob Bollard at Belafonte Enterprises. Okay, I'm going to leave St. Louis for a minute. In the Applesauce podcast, Belafonte Enterprises, I wanted to go into more detail about Bob Bollard. This is as good a place as any. Everybody should meet a Bob Bollard when he or she goes to New York to begin a career. I've already told about how I sang the baby smile for him, but what I haven't told is how he nurtured me. He made up little jobs for me to do so he could give me some money and keep me afloat. Like one time, he called me into his office and told me he wanted me to write the album notes for a new recording. A day or so later, he called and said I didn't have to write them after all, but he'd pay me anyway. He never wanted me to write liner notes. He had already written them. He just wanted to have an excuse to give me some money. 
But as time went on, he did give me little assignments that were legit. He gave me songs that were recorded in other languages and challenged me to write an English lyric. One was a lovely lullaby that Miriam Makeba sang in Gosa. It had a little musical passage that sort of hung over the melody. I wrote a lyric that used that bit that hung over. It's hard to describe, but it impressed Bob that I'd thought to do that. I was doing little jobs like that over a period of a few months. Then one day Bob called me and said he wanted to talk to me about something important. When I got to the office, his first words were, How would you like to write the lyrics for a Broadway show? I'll write the music. You'd have thought he was asking me if I wanted a chocolate ice cream cone. I said, yeah, that'd be fun. When I looked back on how casual I was, I can't believe it. But at the time, it seemed doable. Why not? He said he could get the rights to two plays and wanted me to read them and pick the one I preferred. The plays were Cyrano de Bergerac and The Mad Woman of Chaillot. Mad Woman had an element of fantasy in it that appealed to me, so I picked that one. Bob said, okay, and that became our plan. We were going to collaborate on a Broadway musical. A Broadway musical. But then he had the first bout with the cancer that eventually took his life. Mad Woman was put on hold. He got back into the office but never recovered enough strength to do much. I've already told the rest of the story. He died, and our hope of writing a Broadway musical died with him. Cyrano and Mad Woman were both eventually made into Broadway musicals, just not by Bob and me. I wasn't the only person from Delaware, Ohio, now living in St. Louis. Carolyn Rickey was a year behind me at Ohio Wesleyan. She was Branch Rickey's granddaughter. In St. Louis, we became pals. Carolyn was the peppiest woman I've ever known. Everything she did, she did with enormous enthusiasm. The kind of woman you knew would get stuff done. It must have been her Ricky DNA. I met some of her aunts and her younger brother Barry, who later changed his name to Branch III. They all had it. Branch Ricky himself had long since moved on from the Cardinals and Dodgers to the Pittsburgh Pirates. So whenever the Pirates were in town, we often went to Bush Stadium and sat next to the dugout on the first base side. One day, this lovely, shy, older gentleman was in the box with us, George Sisler. He had been one of the original inductees into the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, along with Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb. You can Google him, too. This is when Roberto Clemente was playing right field for the Pirates. He was baseball poetry. At one point, he nonchalantly caught a fly ball in deep right field and sort of flicked it underhand all the way to the pitcher in the air. You had to be impressed. But secretly, I hated the Pirates. I was sitting in my Vicks car listening when Bill Mazeroski hit the homer that beat the Yankees in the World Series. I never got over it. And while I'm on the subject of baseball, especially the Yankees, there's another story that I've wanted to tell that I haven't gotten around to yet. When I was doing on-air promotion at WNBC-TV, Charlie Powell... Now, see, I should tell you about Charlie Powell. Charlie and I met at NBC. He was running radio promotion. We ended up living in the same co-op on West 77th Street, and we became pals. Charlie was one of those guys who always heard the latest joke before you did. He had a wonderful, very Jewish sense of humor. When his son Mel was born... 
Charlie insisted that he came out speaking. His first word? Stethoscope. He went from WNBC Radio to Columbia Pictures in New York, then to Universal in Hollywood. During the period when colorization was the latest fad in Hollywood, Charlie moved to a company that was doing that. He was slated to become president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, but cancer interfered. It was Charlie who told me how things worked. We were discussing the Oscars that were coming up. This is when he was at Columbia. He insisted that Barbara Streisand was going to win the Oscar for Funny Girl. I thought somebody else would. Let me explain something to you, he said. Funny Girl's our picture. She has Hello, Dolly! coming out, and she's in production for On a Clear Day. It's in everybody's financial interest for her to win an Oscar. End of story. And, of course, she won the Oscar. Anyway, Charlie was running a radio promotion with the New York Yankees. There was going to be a celebrity game that preceded a home game at Yankee Stadium. I had been a Yankee fan since I was a kid in Delaware, Ohio. My buddy Bo and I were the only ones in town. Everybody else rooted for Cleveland or Cincinnati. So when I found out about Charlie's Yankee Stadium promotion, there's no way I wasn't going to be there. We were ushered into the bowels of Yankee Stadium, through the Yankee locker room, and into the Yankee dugout. This was the Yankees of Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris, Yogi Berra, Whitey Ford, Bobby Richardson, Moose Scowen, Joe Pepitone, Elston Howard, Tony Kubek, Cleet Boyer. Need I go on? One of the great Yankee teams. And I was in that Yankee dugout. When it came game time and the celebrity game was finished, all those guys came into the dugout in their pinstripes. I felt like I'd died and gone to heaven. They were all there. Well, almost all. Mickey Mantle wasn't suited up. He was nowhere to be seen. I lingered in the dugout as long as I possibly could, but eventually they were going to play a game and probably took a dim view of this guy walking around with his mouth hanging open. They pointed me toward the locker room and said goodbye. So, I have to go back through the locker room to get to my seat behind home plate. And there is Mickey Mantle shooting the shit with Pat Summerall. I just stared. Mickey Mantle. There was no one else in the locker room but them and me. Eventually, Mickey noticed me gawking and came over to me. You know, the locker room attendant doesn't like it for people to be hanging around during the game. Do you have a ticket? I managed to say I did. He shook my hand, and I zombied all the way to my seat. The souvenir from that outing was a baseball signed by all those Yankees. Mickey Mantle signed mine in green, and Yogi Berra signed it twice. It got ripped off by a sports memorabilia store in Beverly Hills. Don't ask. Bev Kelly was also from Delaware, Ohio. He had been the promotion guy for the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus during its heyday. He was now manager of the St. Louis Municipal Opera, easily one of the great summer outdoor theaters of all time. I saw a spectacular stage version of Meet Me in St. Louis that premiered while I was there. I had been friends with both his kids. Patty and I had performed duets at various functions in high school. Our big hit was, How Could You Believe Me When I Said I Love You When You Know I've Been a Liar All My Life. That's from the Hollywood musical Royal Wedding. Her older brother Steve and I went to work as roughnecks in the oil fields of Oklahoma. That's a good story. But it'll keep. 
Let me just wrap up St. Louis by saying that each of us is the central character in his or her own story. That's not an ego thing, that's a reality. We may have different supporting characters who come and go along the way, but in the end, the life we know is the one we live. Each of us. My life has, and this isn't a word I use easily, I just don't know a better way to put it. My life as an artist began in St. Louis. It's where I got paid for the first time to make stuff up, to pretend I was somebody else. Where by definition, I became professional. Where I found the desire and discipline to write. Where I found out how big a role luck plays. Where I got hooked on an addiction that has lasted a lifetime. It would still be a while before I actually jumped in with both feet, but St. Louis was my launch pad. The place that gave me confidence and self-belief. Next stop, New York City. I bid a fond farewell to that grand lady on the Mississippi River and headed east, hoping that one day the St. Louis Post-Dispatch would have a reason to refer to me as a former St. Louisan. I'm Chris Wallace.